We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Archaeo Animals, the podcast all about zooarchaeology. I'm your host, Alex Fitzpatrick, and with me as always, Simona Falanga. I'm doing the introduction because I'm not probably going to talk much at all during this episode because it is another installment of our mini-series, Time Warped, where we're looking at the zooarchaeology of different time periods. And today is a special episode because we are finally, because we, you know, we never talk about the, this time period ever on this podcast. And Simona's just been dying to talk about it. So we're finally going to give her a platform for Simona's Romans. So yeah, this is Simona's time to shine. Simona, do you want to introduce the audience to your Romans? Well, well you see that that's unfortunate because the way I thought this was going to work out is just I'm going to leave all the notes there and disappear and then you have fun. No, absolutely not. <laughs> this is not my time to shine. This is your moment. Why would I ever do that? <laughs> All right, so let me introduce you to the time period that I somehow ended up knowing things about. <laughs> As Alex just mentioned, in this episode, we'll be covering the Roman period, and more specifically, because we are Britain-centric to oblivion, you know this by now, we'll be looking at the Romano-British period. So of course, it follows the Roman invasion of Britain in 43 AD, and ends with their ultimate retreat in 410 AD. Now, as always, because I think we've been saying it on every single instalment of the miniseries, word of caution, because of course, you know, the Iron Age, Romano-British, you know, these are all conventional terms that make it easier for us to identify a particular time period. But of course, bear in mind the arbitrary terms in nature, as you'd expect. So of course, you know, the entire island didn't just get Romanized overnight. And indeed, some parts of it were, were subject to little, if no, Roman influence. So just as a little overview of the Roman occupation in the British Isles, I mean, as you would have heard if you listened to a previous episode on the archaeology of the later prehistoric period, we do start seeing the introduction of Roman material culture at the end of the Iron Age. And indeed, by that point, the southeast of England is particularly Romanized. We see an earlier invasion attempt by the Romans, another one that eventually succeeds in 43 AD and leads to sort of Romanized settlements and a military presence being established throughout Britain. I think from the get-go, at the beginning, the Romans had a, a client-king system going on where essentially you'd have Britonic kings whose authority was recognised by the empire, the empire. That, of course, didn't last very long, because, of course, as groups started to rebel against Roman rule, the Romans sort of went just you know, off with them then. So no more client kings. And uh, as, you, as you may have figured by now, rebellions weren't an infrequent occurrence while the Romans were around and will continue almost pretty much throughout and eventually, well, 
guess, be one of the factors leading to the withdrawal of the Roman troops from the British Isles in 410 AD. Yeah, so it's a really interesting time, not only just for, you know, everything that's happening during this period, but it's a very interesting kind of influx of elements occurring. As Simona said, and as we've been kind of repeating during these episodes, these kind of periods are very arbitrary. And I feel like the beginning of the Romano-British uh, period is really emblematic of that in that, as Simona said, not every part of Britain is being Romanized. So you do, and we kind of discussed this in the last episode, you don't, you know, you do get this kind of overlap in these periods. It's not necessarily that clean cut. And what's really interesting about this period is because it's, you know, basically just invasion attempts and invasions after the other and Romanization, you will, you do get a very interesting influx of external factors in the archaeological record. And I think that will really be shown in the kind of species diversity, because as you might remember, if, you've, if you're one of those people who have actually listened to all of our episodes, I, I think we've kind of touched upon this before. There's a lot of different things happening when it comes to introductions because of the Romans. Yeah, I think that's probably one of the most exciting parts of a uh, Roman zoo archaeology. <laughs> but I mean, as you, uh, as you said, I mean, like I think the things I guess that's particularly interesting about this period is that there is so much regional variation. Yeah. But then now that that is not to say that that wasn't true for other time periods. But of course, what you've got to bear in mind uh, is that we have a much larger data set <laughs> for the Roman period. As we discussed in, uh, well, especially sort of in the earlier prehistoric mm -hmm. episode, where like there is so little sites because just the evidence is so scant. Well, there were a lot less people about, uh, a lot less evidence, and a lot less just being dug. So, of course, we have a, a much smaller, smaller data set to work on compared to the, the Roman period and the following period, maybe with the exception of the early Saxon. Mm -hmm. You know, you jump to the medieval period, we have a lot more to go by. Because also, as you would have noticed, the time frames are getting shorter and shorter because we went from the earlier prehistoric period that spanned <laughs> several, about <laughs> tens of thousands of years. <laughs> and then it becomes a handful of thousands in the later prehistoric. And now we're talking like just not even 400 years. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, we're seeing, you know, we can really kind of trace it. I mean, this is a very maybe basic thing to say, but as we're moving through these periods, we're starting to see more established permanent settlements. And these are the settlements that obviously last. Of course, they're, you know, in ruins. But I mean, if you go to England today... There are loads of, of Roman bits and pieces you can find just there. So we're seeing a more established, more kind of permanent archaeological and zooarchaeological record. And that is starting to really bulk up the way we see these periods. And like you said, these periods are getting smaller and smaller because we can actually kind of, you know, we have the data to just say, oh, you know, this period has a very similar kind of through line, we can mark this down as one particular period, if that makes sense. When we were talking about the early prehistoric and later prehistoric, we're really grasping at straws because obviously there's little data, there's a lot more kind of diversity as people are a bit more spread out. There's so many more unknowns that a lot of the time we're kind of just very broadly saying, well, you know, this is the later prehistoric. So it, it is going to be interesting as we, from this point onward, basically, we'll see these periods get smaller and smaller. Well, not necessarily smaller and smaller, but you know what I mean, which is fun, I guess. Not as mysterious, I guess, as the earlier periods, but... No, which is why, like, on principle, I'm not as fascinated by the Roman period, even Same. though I ended up amassing <laughs> some knowledge about it. Because, of course, another thing that helped us, uh, give us a, a good, like, helping hand 
is a written record. Yes. Which, of course, it, it is to be taken with a pinch of salt. But isn't it great to just read about Pliny just ranting about how awful the wine is in Sicily? Like Our boy, our boy Pliny. God forbid he doesn't have an opinion about something. I mean, you know, it's funny as someone who mostly works in the prehistoric period and is only kind of very briefly touched upon later periods like the later iron age and as we'll see in the late in a upcoming episode the uh you know the post-medieval period it's so weird to me to be able to even have like any type of textual evidence i'm so used to just working with you know what you've got it's very it's so strange like i don't i you know, I have friends who are historic archaeologists, and that's obviously even more recent <laughs> in uh, kind of archaeology. And I, it just seems like a completely different field to me. You know? Yeah, but like, imagine <laughs> if you had like some written record for Kelsey caves from the earlier prehistoric phases of just someone going, "I don't like this cave. It's." damp and I'm cold. I don't like it. My fire won't start because you guess what? My my fuel is damp and everything is damp. I hate it. I mean, I already knew that as someone who's been to these caves, like I refuse to believe anything's really changed. The uh, miserable time I had sitting in the cave with what I thought was a broken arm for five hours, I assume is the same miserable time someone else had during the late Bronze Age. And that's what makes archaeology so special. We love phenomenology. So, so are you saying that you hurting your arm on the dig was actually experimental archaeology, just seeing it through their eyes? I mean, honestly, um, my supervisor was like, because, okay, so in my PhD, in my thesis, there's a chapter on, you know, obviously describing the caves themselves and kind of like the the sensory quality is my supervisor was like you know you should just take that picture because i took obviously took a picture of myself with my arm in a sling uh, after i fell off a boulder and she was just like you should just put that in your thesis as like you know uh, figure figure one on how difficult it is to get to the caves so yeah it was basically experimental archaeology i'm basically ahead of the curve when it comes to those kinds of stuff i mean what other archaeologists has thrown themselves off a boulder for science please don't throw yourselves off a boulder for science we do not endorse jumping (laughs) off boulders for science this is why i don't excavate anymore i like i think the amount of boulder induced injuries i've had at this point is actually kind of startling that's it impressive i'm very i'm very good at my job it's fine i mean uh, it is um like um, being very humble about it after a number of years of experience in the field digging i've had zero boulder related accidents and you know what no offense mona i think that speaks to your lack of commitment to the science Everyone should be throwing themselves off boulders. That's clearly what you need to do in archaeology. The Romans probably threw themselves off boulders. Where's your commitment? Uh, I mean, Pliny probably wrote about it somewhere. I mean, it might be a remedy for, I don't know, a sore throat. Jump off a boulder. I mean... It it sounds like something you'd write. Can we please, 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 on behalf of the Archaeology Podcast Network, I please, 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 this is not an endorsement of jumping off boulders. Please, please do health and safety when on site. (laughs) Thanks, everyone. No boulder jumping, okay? Okay, Alex. Okay. Look what happened to Alex. What, look what happened to Alex. It's it's not it's not fun. No, it's, it's not, not fun. Is it Alex? This not is fun. why I don't excavate anymore. <laughs> yeah, just, we'll, we'll, we'll just put a photo in the show notes saying that, that that that's why you don't jump off boulders for science. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, to taking it back somewhat <laughs> to the Romano British period. I mean, yes, as a, a quick, of course, we'll get more into it in the next segment. But yeah, I just want to stress once more about sort of the variation that we start getting in our data sets for this period. But of course, because, you know, the industry, the type of settlement and various factors will have a lot to do with how Romanized a site is. So like, just as a quick example, like speaking of actual sort of archaeology in the ground in terms of features, You'll have, um, you know, highly Romanized sites, uh, such as like Villa or Villas or Vici, which is 
you've never heard of them, that's a Vichy is the plural of Vickers. And they are sort of settlements within close proximity to a fort. And usually so their economy is quite deeply linked with that of the fort. So both of these are sort of highly Romanized settlements and will be much more rectangular in shape. You'll find like everything from ditches, the buildings, it's all very sort of squared off and rectangular, as opposed to more what we call sort of more native sites where sort of the circular patterns of the Iron Age will still be repeated. And to an extent, we also see a difference of construction materials being used. So like, while the Romans loved using stone and sort of making stone buildings, uh, a lot of the native sites still favoured buildings and structures made out of wood. Of course, again, uh, there's regional variations, because if you are in a location where stone is readily available, say Wales or Cornwall, then you have buildings during this time period and earlier, sort of even sort of Iron Age and earlier buildings that were made out of stone, which sort of takes me to my next point, so that your site, so therefore sort of the percentages of um, certain species that you'd expect will depend a lot on the type of industry, as we said, what type of settlement it is, like in terms of how Romanized it is, and a host of like location, geographical factors, and availability of raw material. So some sites that are not very Romanized will probably still build out, out of stone because it's right there <laughs> and it's easy to acquire. And we'll discuss this a little bit more in the case study as well. But I think sort of for the next segment, we'll probably just try and discuss the more, the broader sort of general trends in Roman zoo archaeology. Which, to be fair, there is a, a lot of. Like we said, this is a very exciting time for, you know, shifts in species, including species introductions. So, you know, a lot, I think a lot of the, the excitement of the archaeological record at this time is that increased kind of diversity not saying that they like introduce a lot of species but you know much more than we're seeing in previous time periods of course well they, they still introduced an amount an amount probably just got here saying like well this is nothing like italy let's make it more like italy <laughs> just like freaking animals over and that and that's the romans in a nutshell it was like oh what's this Red deer. I don't hunt that in Italy. I don't like it. No, bring the fallow deer. <laughs> but more of that in the next next segment. Look at them. They ruined a perfectly good deer. Let's bring ours. <laughs> but yeah, let's um let's take a break and we will be back to talk a bit more about these new and exciting elements in the zooarchaeological record. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high-quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high-quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code animals swimsuit check sunscreen check phone charger check don't forget to pack the five hour energy it fits great in a pocket or carry-on and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything now get 20 percent off when you use code 5he travel at fivehourenergy.com Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5hourenergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites 
according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. And we are back with Archeo Animals. This episode is another installment in our Time Warped miniseries, and we are looking at the zooarchaeology of the Romano-British period. And now we are going to kind of look at the kind of general, you know, uh, what's the word? Trend? Yeah, that's the word. I was like literally looking at the word trend while I was trying to think it. I'm very smart. But yeah, we are going to look at kind of the general trends that we're seeing, because even though, you know, this is a smaller period than some of the previous ones, you still kind of have to like generalize what we're looking at, you know? Just like the, the broad, the broad strokes, you know, we, we do have an hour after all. I think if we went, this if we went to every like single regional variation, also I'm pretty sure half the whole audience will just snooze. <laughs> I would fall asleep, I said, oh, to be honest. Let, let's uh, look like at the percentage of, uh, I don't know, sub-adult sheep remains in Cumbria. Um, no, I'm good. Um, <laughs> I mean, just I guess while we're talking about broad stroke, uh, in terms of like ge- prevalent crafted industries, as uh, so we discussed for earlier time yes. periods as well, of course you still have agriculture, still there, still a big one. You have your livestock rearing, <laughs> crop and fodder production. Probably manure, they'd use manure for stuff as well. Of course, you have your metalworking now with iron, straight from the Iron Age. Because they had, you know, Bronze Age, just the bronze. Then Iron Age, just the iron. And then just like, oh, let's do all of them. <laughs> of course, you know, pottery and tile production. Again, as you expect, you know, like textiles, leather. You, we also start seeing, again... We see them before as well, but, you know, worked bone, horn and antler objects. And I think so in the segment, we're not going to be covering hunting as much because there isn't as much mm-hmm. evidence of hunted animals because it does tend to be a bit of a more high status activity because you start getting that concept of the nobility and the gentry just hunting animals in their park and, you know, yeah. all that. That's, that's the professional term. <laughs> so, you know, you'd have a uh, large high status farmsteads and villas having sort of fields that I guess are sort of similar, a precursor to the deer parks where the upper classes would hunt for game in the Norman period and until much more recently as well. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I always, in my mind, think of the Roman period as kind of a real turning point for class stratification, particularly in how you see it in the archaeological record. Obviously, you know, we have these kind of interpretations of status in, say, the later prehistoric, but I feel like once you hit the Roman period, you can really kind of tell that there's a, a bit of a difference between upper class and lower yeah, class. I think he, it, the bling is a lot more obvious. Yeah, <laughs> it's a, it's yeah, it's a bit much. Oh, it, it, it's a, it's definitely a lot. Villa, when you think that a lot of the like the marble statues were actually painted in really bright colors, and you thought, oh no, oh no, oh, no, I hate it. I'm sorry. Like I know that's factual, but yeah, I remember learning that when I was doing my undergrad as a classical archaeologist and just being like, oh no, I don't like that at all. (laughs) So, Fun fact, my dog hates them too. Yeah, because your dog has taste. Well, because we we visited, I think we mentioned this place before in earlier episodes, but uh, the first time we went, we visited Butzer Ancient Farms, because it's it's an experimental archaeology farm those haven't heard of it before Mm -hmm. and it's got different sections ranging from the early prehistoric to the saxon period with reconstructed buildings and such and they also have a reconstructed roman villa with a little herb garden and their statues that of course are painted in a period accurate way sandy wouldn't stop barking at them she was proper (laughs) she was proper freaked out by the statues yeah i mean i feel like especially you know you grow up kind of once, even if you're not necessarily growing up, you know, in like archaeology or classics kind of household, you you do grow up with the the notion of you know Roman 
statuary and of course the way that it's presented to you is in its very you know non-colorful yeah, form just sort of, so you just kind of internalize it because also they look so very refined and noble and then you just see it bam all the colors and it's like <laughs> well, i mean you you you, you, you well you do you you did you romans yeah but back to animals i think you're more of a fish expert than I am, probably by a long shot. <laughs> no. <laughs> no fishing in the Roman period? Uh, I mean, there is fishing in the Roman period, but, you know. Okay. Archaeologists <laughs> done, everyone. There was fishing in the Roman period. Well, they like that fish sauce stuff that we always like to talk about. Yes, which you I know? forgot what it's made of, and I looked it up, and it just sounded just not nice. No, I um I remember I did a I was the resident fish bone expert, hilarious of course, for a event at York, uh, looking at fish bones, and <laughs> they actually had someone come in and make that fish sauce, and boy did it stink! <laughs> it smelled. I didn't have any, but although you, you do tend to find oysters a lot, yes, love their oysters. But I guess in terms of domesticates, before we get into the actual sort of prevalence of a species or another, it's also worth pointing out that another thing that we see in the Roman period is an increase in size of the domesticates. Because in, in previous time periods, they, people were probably selecting their livestock, but not to the scale in which the Romans mm-hmm. did it, sort of, of constantly selecting larger animals and likely also importing larger specimens from the continent. Because again, oh, this cow isn't big, as big as the cows in Italy. Bring the Italian cows over. So you, you do see consistently larger animals compared to the Iron Age. Yeah, you see some absolute units. <laughs> Is that still a popular meme? I'm not sure. For the time period anyway, just like wait until you see post-medieval cow. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but I guess in terms of other domesticates, I mean, as you expect, the most prevalent, sheep. Yeah, everyone can believe that. Yeah. Probably because, you know, they're quite easy to keep. And the Romans, much like in the Bronze Age, didn't do a lot of deforestation. <laughs> so a lot of sheep. It does tend to decline towards the later end of the Roman period, but otherwise... Sheep very prevalent throughout, of course, some places more than others, but most, most prevalent yeah. throughout. As is pig, in a way, because, I mean, pig is one of those that it's not really, it's not super common, and it's not uncommon, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I think we've kind of talked about it in a previous episode, but pigs are, you know, especially when we're talking about these earlier periods, they are a lot <laughs> to to handle and deal with, you know, usually the reason why pig was kind of seen as a high status, more of a high status species is because you need a lot of land and a lot of resources to raise them. And, you know, they're not, they're not, like you know cattle or sheep where you're kind of you can kind of constantly get products from them you have to raise a pig and then you know eat it yeah so there's not much of course that there are other secondary products out of pig that we won't necessarily find in the archaeological record but the the primary one would have just been eating them like you can't use them to work the land (laughs) you can't get any wool off them they won't give you any milk like they just eat your you can they try. just eat your food until you eat them. Mm-hmm. So, like, although it does, for the most part, tend to be more of a high-status thing and more ple- prevalent on Romanized sites, uh, as the Romans yeah. were very, very fond of pig. If you look at Roman sort of recipes, many of them feature pork. And I think one of the delicacies was suckling pig, which is exactly what you'd expect. It is a, an, an incredibly <laughs> juvenile pig. Too juvenile a pig. Please, please don't. <laughs> that was a Roman delicacy there. And of course, I forgot to mention that aside from a size, the size increase, you also see a change compared to the Iron Age in the way carcasses are processed in terms of butchery marks. Because with the Romans, sores start making an appearance. So you start seeing sore marks on the bone. And also like um, mm-hmm. an interesting thing that you find on scapulae, like largely cattle scapulae, like you'd, have, you'd find a hole in it. And I think it's been argued that that was uh, where they'd get hung up to dry 
they'll be like sort of salted and hung to dry. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I feel like, especially when we're looking at differences in time period, I feel like we don't necessarily get to look at a lot of that kind of taphonomic elements, like the how bones are kind of worked like that or you know processed uh, it's something that so i don't necessarily think of right away so it's interesting that that's like a component to it yeah and i mean again in terms of generic trends as we said before sheep were sort of mostly prevalent in the earlier part of the romano british period but that sort of shifts for the most part mm-hmm. towards the latter end of the um, time period where you see an increase in cattle and pig, which could be due to a a host of different reasons. There's one that sort of has been mentioned before and is one of the arguments made in King's comparative survey of bone assemblages from Roman sites in Britain. And what was argued there, I mentioned it before, so I'm going to delight you with that, with this fact again, is that around that time, sort of in the latter end of the uh, Roman occupation, there was a change in Roman taxation law where not only you were taxed pro capita, but also your livestock was taxed, but per livestock, thus it would become a lot more economical sort of for tax purposes to keep say pigs and cattle which are a lot bigger than sheep because of course you need a lot more sheep to get you know x amount of meat that you could just get from the one cow but then if you have one cow you just get Mm -hmm. taxed on the one cow as opposed to five animals and as everyone knows we love talking about taxes on this show (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's uh, romans and taxes Welcome to Romans and Taxes, the show all about the archaeology of Romans, but specifically just Roman taxation law. Well, that's, that's okay. Oh. Were there any uh, tax havens for the Romans? I mean, there probably was. <laughs> there definitely if you, was. If you took, if you took your like, you, you had, had like a couple of like, I don't know, what would be offshore for the Romans? Would that be like Ireland, like like today? <laughs> oh, actually, today Ireland is a tax haven. <laughs> Was it ta- was Ireland a tax haven in Roman times? Uh, uh, does, well, that's uh, a question. <laughs> um, Listen, for master students out there, there is a PhD thesis that I've never heard one. Go for it. <laughs> Do that research. Ireland tax havens. I, I am afraid I'm not well versed on um, on that particular subject, unless it's got bones in it. I'm not really sure. But yeah, but that 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 was the the general trends in um, Roman zoo archaeology. However, there are regional variations. I think I feel there should be like a bingo or something going on every time I say regional variation. But still going on sort of what was highlighted in King's work. So like in the comparative survey of bone assemblages from Roman sites in Britain, as you'd expect from the title, a number of sites that were compared in terms of sort of zooarchaeological data to try and contrast, well, what the record is like for the period in Britain. And one of the things I highlighted is that it seemed that uh, you'd get a higher incidence of sheep, for instance, in lowland pastures with lighter soils. So even sort of in the later periods when sheep become less prevalent, and so in areas of the country that had more pastures and generally just lighter soils, you would still find a higher incidence of sheep, mm-hmm. while sort of more highland and wooded locations would favour cattle and pig. And of course, that absolutely makes sense because of well, the very biology of these animals, cattle and pigs being very well suited to woodland and sheep being better in pastures. Yeah, I mean, that, that checks out. <laughs> checks out with the biology. Yeah. Can't blame him for that. I feel like, though, not to not to skip through a bit, but, I mean, we got to talk about the introductions. Uh, I suppose. I mean, we've covered it in an earlier episode, so please do, like, I think it's, you'd have to scroll quite a way back, but we did an entire episode on introductions of species, and of course, the vast majority of those were introduced by the Romans. But yes, indeed, I think one of the most exciting parts of, parts of Roman zoo archaeology is the introduction of several species that we still find today. Even though allegedly we, we do have some Iron Age examples of some of these species, but you know, it might be that they'd already been introduced back then and we've not found enough of them, or it might have been a one-off mm. or just the result of trade. But 
either or, these species are generally attributed to sort of a Roman introduction. So yeah, we got our, our rabbit, we got our cats, we got our fallow deer, and... and... Also, like, it's it's not a rabbit, it's an Iberian hare. Oh, excuse well, me. The Romans couldn't differentiate between rabbits and hares, and of course, like, rabbits being originally mostly of the, the um, Spain, so in that general region, the Romans just knew them as the Iberian hares. The Iberian, the Iberian I mean, Peninsula, that's the word. It's in the name. Yeah, it was the Iberian hair. I mean, that's something me and the Romans have in common, as I also can barely tell the difference between rabbit bones and hair bones sometimes. It's a giant pain, let me tell you, as someone who's had to go through a, bo- a box of just rabbit and hair bones. Sometimes. Yeah, because the morphology is quite similar, and then the normally size should be a... A giveaway, but then you can also be dealing with a very small hair of a very large rabbit, and which is which. Or if you're me, you're dealing with a whole box of fragmented bones, so you can't even really tell. Thanks, archaeology. And of course you nearly forgot our good old friend, the general, the mighty. I mean, yes, of course. Sitophilus Granarius, the great weevil. <laughs> to be fair... To be fair, I was waiting for you to say it because one, I can't pronounce that, and two, you give it the gravitas it deserves. <laughs> Obviously, no one ever said that to me ever. <laughs> gravitas. <laughs> you do. You have the, the 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 great gravitas that the Romans would appreciate. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> but yeah, no, definitely the best contribution that we've had from the Romans. You know, what did the Romans ever do for us? Well, they brought the grain weevil that still haunts us to this day. Thanks, Romans. <laughs> but I mean, zoarchaeologically speaking, it's I'm very thankful that they brought these species to us because it makes uh, dating uh, by eye a lot easier sometimes. Be like, <laughs> yeah, grain weevil, yeah, definitely not Neolithic then. <laughs> you know, when you can spot a grain weevil just like off the top of your head during an excavation, whom among us who are archaeologists hasn't done that? Looking at a, like a, a soil heap and going, see that grain weevil? Also, one that's perfectly preserved like that. Like, where are you digging? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, invite me. I'll actually excavate on that one. Sounds like it's an extremely easy site. Preserved insects. I says, wow. Because, yeah, like, okay, just for the record, of course, for insects to be preserved, it usually has to be for much, like, for much of the organic materials, such as wood, it has to be very particular sort of anaerobic conditions where it's either very arid or very waterlogged. Uh, other than that, uh, probably no n- no long-dead Cytophilus granarius will be left. There'll probably be, still, still be live ones that are just ruining your flower. Yeah. But, but that's why we salute and respect our colleagues who do archaeoentomology or whatever that that is is. the one and yeah sure and with that i think we'll take a break and we will get back to our case studies you may have heard my pitch for membership it's a great idea and really helps out however you can also support us by picking up a fun t-shirt sticker or something from a large selection of items from our t public store Head over to arcpodnet.com slash shop for a link. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop to pick up some fun swag and support the show. Welcome back to Archaeo Animals. And we are talking about the zooarchaeology of the Roman period as part of our mini series, Time Warped, where we're looking at the zooarchaeology of various time periods. And again, we always say this. No one has ever actually said this to us. But we've just decided, and we will continue to say, that this is the part of the show that everyone loves and wants to hear. And it's case studies, baby. (laughs) Although I think one very quick consideration again, because I'm just full of considerations this episode, in terms of sort of like the more prevalent species found on Roman sites, there is... One more uh, factor that we need to consider, aside from, you know, type of settlement and geography and culture and, uh, you know, all the ones mentioned in the earlier segment. Another thing that we've got to bear in mind, uh, and that is true for all time periods, really, is that your assemblage Mm -hmm. is only going to 
reflect material which was consumed on site and thus may not necessarily reflect the livestock that was kept on that site. You know, we don't know whether that sort of animal or meat joint that we found had been traded some distance and brought to the settlement or whether it was livestock that had been reared on site. And at the same time, we won't necessarily know whether some of the remains found were imported in from elsewhere. I think that's definitely important to consider as we go into our case studies, just because, you know, like we were talking about, the Roman period is we see this kind of, you know, external, not externalized, uh, expanded kind of class stratification where we're seeing a bit more decadence going on. And as such... You're going to you're going to have more cases of, you know, food that was specifically imported in for whatever feasting, consumption, use or whatever. And, you know, our trade, the trading routes are also expanding a bit more as we get into this period. There's a whole Sorry, there's a whole infrastructure that has been set. Exactly. Yeah. Equally, we'll see things that things that have been imported in, but equally that have been exported out. So say, yes. you know, like if we're digging an urban centre, so like a Roman town, you'll find that maybe a lot of the animal bone that you're finding there was not from cattle, say, that had been reared within the city, probably came from a farm nearby, and then brought mm-hmm. in either as a live animal or butchered. I mean, of course, there are some hints that we can find in the archaeological record. So like if we're finding in a particular site, we're finding animal bone, but we're seeing a lack of sort of primary butchery. So like say the deposition of like the hands and feet, which tend to be, you know, the first things that come off when yeah. the animal's dispatched, then it may indicate that the meat joints were imported in as opposed to the animal being slaughtered on the premises. And equally finding sort of neonatal remains sort of would imply some sort of population control or that either way, the animals were bred on site because you'd kind of have to have that for you to have (laughs) neonatals, whether stillborn or dispatched for, say, you know, cold. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, that was my consideration. (laughs) No, I mean, I think that's a great way to kind of introduce our first case study, which is Fishburne Roman Palace slash Villa. I've always heard it just Fishburne Roman Palace. Yeah, I think the the name of the site is the uh, Fishburne Roman Palace. Yeah, but then I also saw it as Villa, so uh, I don't worry, I guess. (laughs) I think it it gets very convoluted with villas, because I think generally we tend to associate a villa sort of with a very high status residential building in Britain. Yeah. However, like, uh, I think that's more so the case in Italy. Usually villas come with a very particular sort of sociocultural context. Uh, okay, yeah. But in a way, just we're just going to go with just a turbo high status Roman place. I mean, it definitely was. So it's it's located in uh, Chichester. Chichester? Chichester? Chichester. I, I just remembered we're, we're two migrants trying to <laughs> say this. I, I think that's I right. Think it, I, think, I think it might be Chichester. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Actual native uh, British folks can yell at us on Twitter about it. But it is the largest Roman residential building found in Britain. It also, I'm going to shout out the its Twitter account because the social media is pretty good might want to follow them on Twitter. But it is a, a very active archaeological site. There's a lot of really interesting work being done in Fishburne, specifically zooarchaeologically. I feel like it's one of those consistently active uh, zooarchaeological sites. Uh, at least that's my perspective from what I've seen on social media. But it's a very interesting site, zooarchaeologically speaking, so I totally understand that. It's... A, it's not just a building, not just like one building. It's kind of a whole suite of buildings. It's got granaries, it has a bathing suite, residential wings, and courtyard gardens. Again, stuff that as someone who works in the prehistoric, I never really experienced. So <laughs> this is all, this is not cave stuff. So I'm very lost. 
Yeah, but I think you get an idea of sort of how high status it is, and also in a way, some self-contained. Like yeah, sort of the granaries because you'd have like there would be there would be some sort of industry. Yeah, going on. Or well, I mean, that's generally what you see with villas in Italy. Because mm-hmm. the yeah. one that I'm more familiar with that can perhaps make a parallel with is um, a late Roman villa in Sicily called Villa del Casale, and I think it's quite renowned for its mosaic floors. Okay. They're just they're, they're quite impressive. And uh, you'll find that all the mosaics are sort of, hunt, well, more than hunting, they're trapping scenes of just the variety of animals, norm, mostly from the African continent, being trapped. Which makes uh-huh. sense, because actually, if you look at the owner of the villa, that was actually his job. Because he was um, oh, someone okay. who was charged, well, not him, he probably sent people, paid for very yeah. little or no money, to go trap animals for him to then go bring in arenas for fighting. Yeah, I mean, that was kind of a bit of a, just kind of the the, the trend in that like Roman opulence and decadence in terms of, you know, showcasing what you quote unquote do, which was oftentimes what you just paid other people to do, which is interesting to think of how that continues on to this day, really. And of course, going back to Fishburne uh, Roman Palace, it was likely owned by someone of that kind of very high status. And I'm going to make Simona tell us who they are because I can't read them. Okay, so some of the names of potential owners that we've heard about <laughs> are Tiberius Claudius Togidupnus, Salustius Luculus. I'm probably pronouncing these wrong myself, just just FYI. Tiberius Claudius Catuarus, or even British Client King Verica. So like it, we've mentioned Client Kings earlier, so the sort of kings that accepted Roman rule, and in return the Romans sort of accepted that these people were kind of in charge until they just went, yeah, nah, we're not doing that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to be fair, though, you, I... Just wanted you to read that as someone who took two years of Latin and almost failed, wasn't going to get close. But, you know, it, it gives you, even if we don't necessarily know exactly who owned the palace, and it was probably likely that more than one person occupied the palace. At, you know, obviously that probably fell into other people's hands. It's definitely someone of very high status. I, I mean, <laughs> we have a bathing suite, people. Not every Joe Schmo is going to have that. <laughs> no, and think about it now. Now, now we do have a, a bathing, well, a toilet. But yeah, I was say I don't have a bathing suite. I don't remember your house having a bathing suite either. Well, it can be a bathing suite if you want it to. Just call it that from now on. Be like, oh, ooh, like, oh, like, oh, sorry. Do you want to use my bathing suite? Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, your your toilet and bathing suite. <laughs> It can be whatever you want it to be. It can be this a bathing suite. <laughs> oh, but yeah, um, you know, other than the bathing suite, there are other kind of in- indicators of maybe status and what was, you know, going on at this site because we have the archaeological record. And one of the kind of main things I think about when I think about Fishburne uh, Roman Palace is chicken. I know that there has been a fair amount of work being done at the chicken remains that have been found at the the palace, uh, specifically from the the chicken project that's being run out of Exeter. I think Exeter and Fishburne Roman Palace have a very close working working, uh, connection with Naomi Sykes's kind of projects. Because the other thing that I think about is fallow deer. Uh, as the earliest fallow deer remains in Britain, as of now, have been found at Fishburne Roman Palace. They were imported from Europe by the whoever the inhabitants were of the palace. And they were likely just roaming around the courtyard <laughs> as you were. Yeah, because again, like, what's this red deer and roe deer nonsense? No, fallow deer. That, that's what we hunt in Italy. So just bring fallow deer over. Meanwhile, could not tell you. I mean, I could tell you the difference scalitally, but I'm going to be honest, if you show me pictures of all those deer, I'd be like, well, the big one's red deer. And that's the beginning and end of it for me. 
Well, I guess the, the antler are very distinctive on the fallow deer because they've got the, oh, I don't know what the English for it is, like the palmate. Oh, yeah, true. I'm so not very... Where... <laughs> I was just going to say, I'm not very um, observant when it comes to the living versions of a lot of these animals. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I mean you, you weren't even sure that there were, like, squirrels in Britain after, like, what, five years? Okay, we're not doing this again. We've we've gone far past this. I know that there are squirrels. I see squirrels every day now. <laughs> Just leave me alone. It's a whole new world. <laughs> leave me alone. Anyway, there were there the I don't think there were squirrels at Fishburne Roman Palace, but there were pigs and sheep as well. Because obviously they were probably uh, at the very least consuming them on this on site. I don't necessarily know if there's much evidence in terms of if they were raising them there, probably not because of what it was in terms of a, you know, a very fancy Roman palace. Uh, but yeah, no, uh, I think the fallow deer are probably like the biggest thing. And again, you know, the, I believe a lot of the fallow deer work and there, there's still fallow deer work going on, I believe out of Fishburne, uh, run by Naomi Sykes. So if you're interested, definitely look into that. Uh, we stand Naomi. She does a lot of really cool, gigantic zoarchaeological projects here in Britain. Because yeah, I think it's his own project. It's like the Fallow Deer Project. Yep. <laughs> she, right. No, she's, uh, she's great because she does these gigantic projects that are basically like how, what were the first time that X animal was introduced to Britain? Like, that's like the whole project, which is why they become these huge, massive things that are super interesting. And obviously we're getting some really exciting results for, between like the fallow deer and the chicken. And I know she's also doing rabbits and I think she's got a cat project going on as well. Just kind of covered the whole, whole thing. It's great stuff. It's very cool. No, it's, it's very cool. I wish I was at that level, but yeah, I think we can move on to our, our next case study, which is kind of a, not really a case study, is it? No, I think it's a me making some more observations because I'm just so <laughs> observant in this episode, but now I'm going to have to condense it. Oh, will I make it? I thought because around the, the case study we just discussed is a, about a very high status settlement, which mm -hmm. is, as you've learned very very interesting and of great scientific contribution but how however because what you get with a lot of these high status places that they do not reflect the average of you know the average life in roman britain or any other period britain for that matter so while sort of uh, the general trends we've discussed before as well are useful so, for instance, there being more cattle and pigs sort of in the late Romano-British period, uh, these have their limitations as or general trends are just they're just that they're general. So <laughs> the conversation I wanted to start was just to, I guess, once more highlight the importance of cultural factors when inferring on human animal relationships in the past. Of course, it's not the only factor we've discussed previously about how the ancient landscape plays a role in forging certain relationships and does, in, does indeed the settlement type that we're looking at. I mean, again, as a very quick example, a military fort will see a higher incidence of cattle. Even in the earlier period when we discussed that sheep were more prevalent, if you look at the military fort, it's just cattle. It is a ridiculous <laughs> amount of cattle. I cannot put it into words. It's much higher than on civilian sites. And again, like another good example, like a generic one that gives you an idea, gives us an idea more sort of the daily life of citizens just in Britannia are the native rural settlements that, of course, you know, they're not going to have the fancy standing buildings and the high status material culture, but it's invaluable data nonetheless, because altogether, together with the high status settlements and the military settlements, they just build, give, you know, a broad data set and give us a clearer picture of what life was like in the Romano-British period, looking at all sort of social classes so taking it, you know, a bit more on the rural settlements, uh, one of the most common one that we find so in the Romano-British period is the enclosed farmstead. And this, well, it's in the name. So you'll have an enclosure ditch, like a boundary ditch on the outside. 
and usually no further subdivision within. And then you also get complex farmsteads that will have their boundary ditch on the outside, but then internal subdivisions within. And of course, they could be used for a number of reasons, like to keep livestock or for industry or storage or likely multifunctional. And that's relevant because in a way, even if you're not finding the animal remains, as is the case, you know, on very acidic sites, like we've covered Carn Uni in the previous episode, you do get indications from the archaeological features themselves that livestock was kept. So that sometimes you can get funneled entrances to these farmsteads. For livestock, you get some particular types of banked ditches and I always forget the name of them, but uh, they would be very useful to prevent livestock from escaping. And you see something very similar to that going forward across the medieval period and to present day in deer parks. So, so the kind of banked ditches that allows the deer to come into the park, but they can't get out. Again, another main difference that we tend to find also between sort of more native sites and uh, more Romanized sites, I think as we discussed before, is the incidence of pig. So the more Romanized settlements, such as, you know, the villas and the vici that we discussed earlier, will have more pig remains than sort of the native settlements, where the number becomes, well, not significantly lower, but lower. Mm -hmm. So it's just, yeah. Sorry if that was very convoluted, but that was a... My way of just highlighting that, well, it's useful to be familiar with the general trends and discussing those, and they are indeed very useful and it's very valuable research. It is also crucial to sort of bear in mind that, you know, all your climatic and geographical and cultural factors as well as settlement type will lead to a just such variety in the archaeological record that, of course, for ease, we try to group into broad trends, but there is a lot more to it. And that's valid for the Romano-British period and pretty much any other time period. No, I mean, I think that's a good thing to point out, especially, you know, obviously this is something that happens across all periods. But I feel like as we get into the later periods, we really see this kind of emphasis on very specific sites. And again, these very specific sites that we kind of focus on tend to be you know, these more higher class sites that were lasted a bit longer than other, you know, just kind of domestic settlement sites. And that really gives you a skewed view of what's happening because like Simona just said, there's all these different cultural factors at play. So I think having this conversation and kind of bringing this up is extremely important because I think even with archaeologists, I think we can lose that kind of focus on, you know, we, we focus so much on a site, especially if we're dedicating a lot of our career on a site that you forget that it's only one small part of a bigger picture. And I also think this is a, yeah. Just as, again, as a, Probably the most simplistic example I could think of, <laughs> I do apologise, but say, you know, you look at Egyptian archaeology, pyramids, fantastic, beautiful structures, but that when you look at them, you're looking at the 1%. What about the 99%? No, exactly. I think it's, I mean, it, it's exactly like probably one of the most predominant issues when it comes to kind of, you know, interpreting archaeology that we always have to kind of keep in our mind is that regardless of what you're looking at, you are looking at a very small piece of the pie. And I think that is a, a good place to end our episode. You did it, Simona. You managed to stick it into a, an hour. I'm sure you could have done another three, but I, I, I don't want to do one to three hours <laughs> on Romans, to be honest. <laughs> anyway... You can find us on Twitter at Archeo Animals. We are on Facebook at Archeo Animals as well. You can subscribe and review our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Tell your friends to listen to us. Tell your enemies to listen to us. Whatever you want to do. That's fine with me. And um, we'll see you next month. Anything else, Simona? As usual, all hate mail to Tristan. Yes, all hate mail to Tristan. Thank 
you for listening to Archeo Animals. Please subscribe and rate the podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. You can find us on Twitter at Archeo Animals. Also, the views expressed on the podcast are those of ourselves, the hosts and guests, and do not necessarily represent those of our institution, employers, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.